And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Another chance for Sweden. Aslani again. Oh, it's a terrific goal. Made and finished by their captain. Heading for yet another bronze medal. I'm Michelle Owen and this is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast World Cup Edition. In the third place playoff, Sweden matched their achievement in 2019 by picking up the bronze medal at the expense of co-hosts Australia. And tomorrow, it's the final. England take on Spain. With me today, all the way from Sydney, are the Athletics' Michael Cox and Laia Severo-Herrero. Hi both. Hello, how are you? Hi. I'm good, thanks. That's the first time someone's asked me how I am in a month, so I appreciate (laughs) that. Um, We've got both camps covered, so let's get straight into it. So, Sunday night in Sydney, Wangle, Sunday morning in the UK, it's England against Spain at Stadium Australia. An all-European final, but neither side has ever made it this far in the competition. The two sides played against each other in the Euros last year, England coming out on top after 120 minutes. So, Michael, before we get into the final in more depth, this has been a tournament of shocks. Is it a shock to see these two sides here if we take it from the round of 16 onwards? Have we been left with the two best teams? That's a good question. I'm really not sure about that. I mean, going to the quarterfinals, I thought Japan were the best team, to be honest. In fact, I've only well, I've only met Lyle once before, and that was in Wellington. And we were watching Spain nil, Japan 4. So at that point, I really didn't expect to see Spain in the final, to be honest. I think they're both good tournament sides, aren't they? They don't concede many goals. I think they have a way of getting through games even when they don't necessarily play well. And I think we always say this about teams who get to the final, but they have grown into the tournament. I thought Spain were really impressive in the game against the Netherlands. I, I know they needed extra time, but I thought they were excellent in that game. And then against Sweden, they were just able to transform the game from the substitutes bench, which I don't think many teams have been able to do that effectively in this tournament. So I'm not sure they're the best two teams, but they're two of the best. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's quite unfair to to just judge Spain for for the Japan game because uh, I think it was more a mental thing more than a football football thing. To to be honest, uh, I do think that they have a, a squad to be in the final, but just taking a look at everything that happened in the last year. Yeah, I mean, nobody was thinking of Spain going to the final in June, in April, in May, neither uh, after the game against Japan. But they just proved to be a resilient team, I would say. And that also makes you one of the best teams, I would I would say. Like, can you just remind us as well of a dispute that occurred last year? Because it's important you know, because it really is quite amazing how far Spain have got in this tournament, given what has happened. And has it overshadowed the tournament? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I just came from from the press conference and six of the maybe 15 questions were about that. And obviously, uh, now they are in the final and everybody's thinking, OK, how is Mapi León feeling now? How is Sandra Paños feeling now? How is Patrick Ijarro feeling now? So 
three of the best players in the world that are not in the World Cup because they don't want to to play with a they don't want to be managed by by Jorge Villa. So it's something big when you have that kind of players. I mean, probably Spain will have more chances to, to to win tomorrow if that players were there. So it's something big, and of course, it I think it's something that would affect the the competition and, and has overshadowed because we have just wasted so many times uh, our question just asking about that, um, just focusing focusing on, on that. And I mean, I don't know if the, the the Spanish players will remember that that World Cup that good after all. Even if they win, they will be just okay. But what's hap- what will happen now with Jorge Vilda? What will happen now to the national team? They will just try to see that. This is a start of, of something big, and they have just to be more committed to the to the team. I think what will happen next is more important, even of winning a World Cup. Is there a sense then, if Spain do win tomorrow, that it's going to empower Jorge Vilda and the federation? I mean, just by uh, reaching the final, it's enough for them because they haven't went through uh, the round of 16 never before so I think they have made already history so they are like reinforced so that's a feeling uh, between the Spanish press media that probably Jorge Villa after winning or not winning the the, champ- the, the World Cup will leave uh, like the national team because uh, it's pretty obvious that the players are not, are not trusting him and it's very difficult just to manage one team if the players uh, don't trust you and I know that he is affected by that. So let's see what happens. But I have that feeling. And it's not information. It's just my opinion. And it's like the opinion of a lot of journalists over there. And it's like the kind of the feeling that we have. That is not sustainable on time, that that situation. Mm. Yeah, if you've not seen on social media, we're seeing the moment that Alexi Bateas was subbed off against Sweden and she snubbed the coaching staff who tried to high-five her as she made her way to the bench. Um, Lionesses haven't had the... Same level of dispute, but they do have one over bonus payments, Michael. Are we seeing the two teams that have just been able to put their differences aside? I mean, I feel like England's... And I'm not belittling them at all in any way, and I think it's wrong that bonuses weren't sorted out before the tournament started, but are we seeing almost ultimate professionalism here from the players? Yeah, I guess so, and I think we've seen that from a few teams. I mean, Jamaica had a big dispute coming into the tournament, but they performed really, really well, I think, beyond anyone's expectations. Nigeria as well. Uh, I think we're really unlucky not to get through against England with a better team in that second-round game. Probably the only time in this tournament England haven't been the better side. So, yeah, it's... um, Like you say, I think a lot of these teams are absolutely right to be forcing the issue about bonuses or you know various situations that they have a, a complaint about but also they've been able to get on and and do the job and I think that's quite valuable because probably sadly the same thing will probably happen in four years time and there's always this argument oh you need to concentrate on the football stop worrying about off the field things but I think teams have shown that you can focus on both that it's not necessarily affecting on-field performance and that's credit to the players involved yeah uh- Pre-final, the FA Chief Exec Mark Bullingham has been speaking on a variety of off-field topics as well. Uh, Chloe Morgan's done a piece on that if you head over to The Athletic. So those are the overriding off-pitch narratives. Uh, let's talk about some football. Obviously, these two sides faced each other last year, as we mentioned, at the Euros. How do we compare what happened last year in the Euros to this game? So how similar are these games going to play out? I would say maybe England will be just 
mm, affected by uh, their, abs their absences, also Spain. But I do think Spain has grown up since that game, especially mentally. They are mentally stronger. And we saw like 90 minutes of Spain just doing their job well and just giving good uh, feelings on the on the pitch but just falling down in the extra time so probably that won't happen this 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 time i think probably spain is uh, weaker in defense that, than it was last year it's because obviously mapillon is not there and she's one of the best center backs that uh, spain could have but Yeah, I would say probably they have one weapon that they ha they hadn't last year. That is that they have grown up as a as a team mentally, and I think for Spain that's uh, one of the main things because we have seen terrible games, especially against Japan, and then brilliant games against Sweden, against the Netherlands, against Switzerland. So I think for them it's very important to be confident, and I think they are now. So that's one of the things that could give. Spain a, a chance, I would say. So for the Lionesses, Michael, Serena Vigman has one big call to make as we see it. Is it Lauren James or is it Ella Toon who starts tomorrow? I think it'll be Ella Toon. I think there's a few reasons for that. I think the goal will have maybe convinced Vigman to keep her in. But I also think England are going to spend a long time without the ball in this game, far more than any other game so far. We know Spain are going to have 60, 70% of possession. And I think Ella Toon's probably a bit more useful for tucking in And, and getting goal side and maybe helping to nullify Bon Matty, whereas James is a kind of pure attacking player. And I also think there's other things that come into it. I just think the fact that James did show indiscipline and let herself down, I think is an element that Friedman would think, well, does she deserve to go straight back into the side? And I also think if it comes to being able to change the game from the bench, I think James is a much better impact sub than Toon. I just think she's got different qualities. She injects that kind of pace. And there's a, there's a chance that Spain are going to do what they've done in the last two games where Parallelo has basically won the game twice in a row despite not starting. So if England feel that they need to hold someone back in reserve who can offer a similar kind of impact, I think there's a lot of reasons to go with Toon over James for this game. Yeah, like you've written about the difficulty Jorge Vilda has in getting the best out of star midfielders like Alexi Pateas and Aitana Bonmate. Why haven't they clicked quite at international level, given they're both stars at club level? I mean, uh, Aitana, in the last season, she changed a bit uh, her position. She normally, she used to play more cl closer to Patrick Guijarro in Barcelona, but then with Alexia being injured, she had to be closer to the box. And I think that's why uh, this year was so good for, for her, because she was playing closer to the goal and that's good for her because she's so good in the in the creation she has been used to play without Alexia and now when she has to play with her she feels that probably she doesn't have that much freedom to create and that's what she's good at so both of them playing together is not the best thing for for Spain right now I think Alexia is not in the best condition physically I mean she has suffered one of the worst injuries you can have if you're a football player I think it's good for the team that she has uh, went to the World Cup because of what she means for the for the team and for the competition she, uh, having the Ballon d'Or on the bank is always is always good and uh, having the, the chance to to put her in the second half obviously something that mentally reinforces a, a team and obviously the, the team that Like the opponent is afraid of that because you have one of the best players in the world, so we could see like the best, the best Spain 
just with Aitana in the midfield. If Aitana and Alexia, both of them are playing, probably England will take advantage of Alexia's physical condition right now. I would say it's not like Alexia is better than that, obviously. She has to just recover uh, her spark, but she wasn't playing for Barcelona when she returned from that injury. So it's crazy to ask her to be at good level for 45 minutes right now. So I think that's why we probably uh, will see the best of Alexia again soon. So I get the feeling from that that you don't think Puter should start. No, I don't think so. But do you think she will start? Uh, I don't think she, she will start. I mean, the other day she started again after so, so many games uh, without being in the, in the lineup. And it wasn't good for, for Spain. She just was substituted and, and she was so angry with her because she did a bad game. And also Sweden take advantage of, of her not being in the best condition. So, I mean... Jorge Vila is quite unpredictable, but uh, I think that everybody saw that. And in a final, you can, they have to be just trustful in, uh, of what Spain knows to do, like their skills. And Alexia, for now, is not a starting player. For now, I mean, it's obvious that she has, she has been suffering for the last year and it's not her fault, but I don't think she will start. Because the balance was so good against the Netherlands with Hermoso in there. I was really yeah. surprised they changed it. I just thought that was the best. Well, they played well in the second round, but I thought they were excellent against the Netherlands. And I was surprised that they would bother changing what seemed to be, you know, sometimes in the tournament you just stumble upon your best 11. And it's not what you thought it would be at the start. It felt to me like Spain had found that and they went away from it by bringing her back, which it yeah, felt weird Jennifer to me. Yeah, Jennifer really had, like, had had a really good World Cup playing as a, in, in the midfield, something that... Probably neither of us was expecting because she normally plays more as a winger or as, or as a uh, forward. But against Switzerland, against the, the Netherlands, she was so good at, at it. And it would make sense just to repeat that kind of planning. I think probably Willa will let Alexia play for some minutes because she deserves it. And she has been one of the faces of the big change in Spain for, for the women's football. It's kind of fair, fair for her just to play uh, two minutes, but obviously everybody wants to win the World Cup. They are just one game away and you have to go with, uh, with your best team. And that one for now is with uh, Jennifer Hermoso on the midfield. So, Michael, how do you see England playing against Spain? Do you think they'll attack in a similar way they did against Australia? No, I think they'll play a little bit more cautiously and on the break. And I know Laia's given a good reason for maybe why we shouldn't read too much into that Japan game. And of course, Japan scored with their first four shots, which is, you know, it was an exaggerated uh, result considering their dominance. But I think England will play reactively. I think they'll try and play in transition. I think there's probably three ways that they can really cause Spain problems. I think the first is just pacing behind. We've seen Lauren Hemp and to a, less, well, to a certain extent, Alessio Russo in a different way, just going into the channels. And at times, I don't think Spain have covered that space in behind the defence well. I think, you know, against the Netherlands, Berenstein caused them a lot of problems. I think Paredes maybe hasn't covered the space in behind very well, so I think that could cause issues. One thing England did really well against Australia was getting the midfielders running in behind. So because England are playing two strikers, the two centre-backs have got to stay close to them. We saw Stanway had that really early chance when she went in behind. Ella Toon can do that as well. And the third thing, which I think might be really crucial, is what you end up with 
when you play these wing backs. Uh, Lucy Bronze and Rachel Daly are both really good in the air. I mean, Bronze is the, the target for every set piece, and Daly's basically a number nine. And I think at times England have switched the play really well to just kind of isolate the opposition fullbacks. I think Spain's fullbacks are very good on the ball, they're very good on the floor defensively, but I'd fancy Bronze and Daly in the air against both of them. So I don't think England are going to have much of the ball. I don't think they're going to be in that in Spain's half that much. But uh, I do fancy them to score a goal. Okay, so let's say Serena sticks with her team that England have used through the knockout stages. This could potentially be a final of super subs, Lauren James and Sam Parejo. Laya, tell us more about Parejo. Why is it she's had such an impact off the bench? I mean, she's so fast, she's so strong, she's so young and she knows how to decide games. And having her just waiting on the bank for the minute 17, 70, sorry, I think it's so good for, for, for Spain because when players are tired, she just takes advantage of that. Uh, I think Spain has a plan for her and it's not in the in the starting uh, lineup, So, Samar Parayolo just, is just one of the that players that I think has grown up the, the most in, in, the, in the tournament. We saw her at, at the beginning of the competition and she was good. She was one of the best in the, in the squad. But then she was getting better and better and better. And two, twice in a, in a row, she just decided the, the game. She was MVP for the matches playing 20 minutes. So that kind of gives you the, the symptom that she's really good and she will be even better because she has only been playing football fully, just playing football for one year. She was playing the half of the other teammates before last year because she was training uh, football and athlete and athletics at the same time at the same time so yeah I think she will be one of the of the best players in the next years yes certainly lots to come from her as well um just finally on the preview of this game then um Lai, you mentioned obviously in the press conference you've just been in with Jorge Vida a lot of the questions being about the issues off the field but was there anything else like worth mentioning that was asked about the game specifically that we might have missed yeah i mean she, he just said that uh, he's going to be he's going to be doing what spain has been doing in the last games there will be no surprises during the whole tournament he has been saying that he wants spain to be recognizable having a, a game that everybody can see okay this is spain yeah, he hasn't said that much. He's not that good a speaker, like in press conferences. So uh, we weren't expecting uh, nothing more than that, to be honest. I think that's the interesting thing about watching some of these teams. And I think Spain is the best example. If Spain do win this tournament, there is a kind of philosophy and an approach that goes beyond the manager and the federation. It is so Spanish. I mean, it's, it reminds me so much of the men's side in the 2010 World Cup, even down to the fact when you're talking about Parallelo. I mean, when Spain won the men's World Cup in 2010, they had all those kind of Barcelona players who were so good on the ball. But they won the games often when they brought on Fabregas, who could go in behind, or Navas, who could dribble. Like, the directness they can introduce just reminds me so much of, of that 2010 team. And I know that... You know, Puteas and Bonmati often speak about being inspired by Xavi and Iniesta. But it is great to see. I mean, it is great to see that there's a kind of, you know, even in this globalised world, there is still a Spanish way of playing. There's a Swedish way of playing. There's an American way of playing. For me, it's one of the most interesting things about the World Cup, just the different styles. There's, there's not that many sports that are completely global, which is exciting in itself, but then you have the regional differences. Is yeah, for me, it's my favourite thing about watching a international football tournament. 
Yeah, and I, I would say that's because the men's national team and the women's national team, when they are being at their best, is when also Barcelona has been at their best. They use just this, they transfer what is happening in the club just to the national team, and that is what is happening now. Uh, if you see like the the usual lineup Jorge Vila is is using. It's full of Barcelona players and they are playing the same thing they play at Barcelona. They have the same strengths and the same weaknesses as Barcelona have. So they know how to play each other. They have learned of, of that. They are like the most professional team you, you can see in Spain right now. So they are using that and that's why they are strong because they are using like the backbone of the team that has won the Champions League. And of course missing three of them I mean it could be even it could be basically Barcelona right if Patri and Mapilion and Panos were there I mean there could be such a better team in terms of cohesion yeah I think it's a shame that we haven't seen Spain being as good as they could be because uh, I mean one of the main problems of of Spain during the tournament was not having the defense you have in in Barcelona they don't concede much goals during the season and Yeah, it's crazy how that could change. I, I think probably I wasn't expecting Teresa Vieira to be that good. I think she really, because she's not a pure defensive pivot, she just had to transform herself because they needed one. I mean, Spain and Barcelona like to play a lot with a def defensive pivot as um, in the style of Sergio Busquets. And Patrick Jaro just have like the the automatisms that a defensive pivot in that kind of play has to have. And I think Teresa Vieira was good at it. I wasn't expecting that. Everybody, I think, is quite surprised with it. Even the players. I was talking to Aitana Bomati the other day and she was saying me, I wasn't expecting Teresa to be that good. I, I, I've never seen Teresa that good. So probably Mapi was more missed than, than, than Patrick. Even if I still think that Patrick Ijaro is the best defensive pivot Spain could have because it's like she matches the style so good. So where does Abelera usually play? Is more up and down? More of a number eight? Yeah, it's kind of, I don't know if it's called like that in, in, in English, but as an insider. Yeah, okay. so, so like similar to like the position of Alexia Putellas, I would yeah. say. Okay, so uh, speaking of crowning a champion, Spain will have royal advantage over England as their queen has decided to travel to the game. But Prince William will not be making the journey over. Uh, well, that is the final preview then, Laia. We'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time. And buona suerte. Am I saying that right? To Spain tomorrow. Hasta luego. K kind no? of. Uh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> Don't be kind. Don't be kind. How shall I have said that? Come on. Suerte. Buena suerte. 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 Yeah, just making like the R more, more strong. You said sweaty like the players' socks will be at the end of the game, Michelle. I know, <laughs> I know. Can you tell that I can't speak Spanish? Every day is a learning day. Um, Laya, best of luck tomorrow. Enjoy the final. Thank you, best of luck. And over in Brisbane, the third place playoff saw Sweden succeed. We'll reflect on that and FIFA president Gianni Infantino saying some, shall we say, interesting things next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. In the third place playoff, Sweden secured their fourth bronze medal in the Women's World Cup against co-hosts Australia. Kosova Aslani scored Sweden's second. And Michael, you wrote a piece a little while ago. She's quite an interesting player, uh, both tactically and actually in terms of how her career has developed up until now. Yeah, she is. I I was really pleased to have the chance to write about her. Maybe the last chance. She's 34. I'm not sure she'll be around for too much longer. Certainly not the next World Cup. But yeah, she's a really interesting character because she was so tempestuous and so kind of badly behaved as a young player. And her development to kind of maturing and becoming more of a leader eventually wearing the armband throughout this tournament she's actually not the captain Uh, Caroline Sager's still the captain but she doesn't start so Aslani wears it and she's also just an interesting player tactically she's a creative player but she's also incredibly hard-working very very good at pressing winning the ball high up and uh, on her day is a fantastic finisher she nearly scored a brilliant goal against Japan that produced one of the saves of the tournament and it was actually a very similar effort that she actually did score tonight so yeah I'm quite happy she's ending well probably her World Cup career maybe who knows her Sweden career on a higher with that goal and another third place it feels very Sweden that they have a 100% record in third place playoffs which is uh, yeah it's just uh, it sums them up a little bit yeah I mean would you expect them to get to the semis would they have expected to get to the semis and match what they did in 2019 it's tough to say they they really went into the euros last year with a lot of confidence and that's not a typical swedish thing to do i think they're generally quite modest and quite humble but they really believed they could win it last year and when they lost 4-0 in the semi-final to england that was a really big psychological blow so i think they came into this tournament a little bit more humble maybe not massive expectations they ended up really with quite a hard pass to the final I mean to get the US in the second round I think was obviously really tough but um, they're a funny team I think they're they're usually a good team who maybe don't quite get the best from their best players I think Fridolina Rolfo is probably the I mean scored the win in the Champions League final probably the most revered player but I never think she's at her best in this system maybe she will grow into more of a, a dominant player if maybe Aslani you know moves on or retires at the end of this tournament but um, yeah, they've had a good tournament and uh, I think they played really well in that game against Japan. You know, we shouldn't forget we were all speaking about Japan as probably the best team in the tournament up to the quarterfinal and Sweden did outplay them and deserved to beat them. So yeah, overall, another very good tournament for them. Going forward then, you mentioned Aslani being 34, Sigurd's 38. Uh, who knows, she might be there in the next tournament. That would be incredible. Um, <laughs> do you think there could be maybe a bit of a change in the guard for Sweden? What, what's the outlook for them going forward? Yeah, they're quite an interesting case. I wrote another article basically about, I mean, it's only about seven years ago since in the UEFA coefficient rankings, Sweden was ranked as the third best league in Europe behind France and Germany. I mean, Sweden put money into women's football before anyone else in Europe and they were still kind of, you know, feeling the legacy of that. But now I think with other nations, larger nations putting money into their football, you know, they're losing their their young players pretty early. They're going to the big leagues and in terms of the development of players, it's almost out of their hands a little bit. You know, if, if their players are going to the WSL when they're 17, 18, WSL clubs don't have as much 
responsibility, as much determination to develop those players as they would if they played in Sweden. So it's going to be an interesting time. I do th- I sense a bit of nervousness that maybe Sweden will fall back in the women's game as, as the other bigger nations take it more seriously. And I do detect a feeling that this was maybe not the last chance, but this was a really good chance. Once they got to the semi-finals, obviously two games away from finally winning something, this group of players. So, uh, yeah, I think there's... Obviously, they'll be pleased to win tonight, but I think there'll be a, yeah, quite a strong sense of sadness that they didn't go the whole way here. So for Australia, obviously, bit of disappointment right now. I always think it must be so tough to lose a semi-final than to lose this match as well, just elongating the disappointment in the tournament. But is this more than they would have expected beforehand? I mean, you talked about how the tournament has grown and grown, but also with Australia's success in the tournament. So was it also key that, they did well for the success of this tournament in Australia and New Zealand? Yeah, I think that's true. I think in the end it was about par. It was about what they would have expected. Personally, what I expected. I think I had them getting to the semi-finals. But of course, there was so much drama along the way. I mean, for Kerr to be out in the first game, some of us were suspicious that maybe she wouldn't appear for the rest of the tournament. Eventually she did. They had a really dreadful second half against Nigeria where I think they really lost their heads. And at that point, they're probably odds odds on to go out in the group stage but to be fair they played a couple of really good games against Canada and against Denmark they deservedly beat both those sides the France game obviously was was nip and tuck really tight but overall I think it reminds me a little bit of the you know being here reminds me a little bit of the feeling at Euro 96 when England got to the semi-finals and just fell short okay there's disappointment they didn't get to the final but it's a bit of a cliche but I do think they have achieved something not bigger than winning the tournament, but something maybe that will last for a long time because, you know, just from speaking to people over here, when I arrived, I was quite nervous, actually, because the number of people I spoke to who didn't know there was a tournament going on, I was like, wow, this is, this is not looking good. But everyone's got into it so much. It's been great to see, and I do think there will be a, a long-lasting effect of that. It's quite incredible, isn't it, that they didn't even know it was happening, and that's credit to Australia for getting everyone involved and garnering that public support and the viewers as well. The viewing figures speak for themselves in Australia. So unlike Sweden, potentially, there does seem a lot more room to grow the talent pool in Australia, Michael. And you mentioned it there. What's going to be the legacy for this team? Is it the development of the women's game there from grassroots like we've seen in England? And how far have Australia got to go to catch up with the likes of the European leagues and and America? That's a very good question uh, and probably a complex answer. I get the sense that the grassroots movement will, will kind of benefit significantly from this. It just seems like loads of young girls are going to be more interested in soccer than they would have been a year ago or two. The thing I can't really work out is how much how much room the domestic league has to grow because European football is becoming so powerful now and there's so much money being put into those clubs from the men's side. And I think growing a domestic league over here with relatively few teams all far apart, etc., it's quite a difficult country to grow a real contender uh, in terms of a domestic league. So I don't know is the answer to that. I, I suspect they will continue to develop very good players, but I'm not really sure whether they're going to be able to, a little bit like Sweden, I'm not sure what they're really going to be able to keep them around for too long. I mean, even look at someone like Kyra Cooney-Cross, who I think is probably their best young player, or one of their best young players alongside Fowler, and she's 20 and she went to play in Sweden, actually, when she was 18, 19, I think. So even at that age, 
you know, players who are good enough to play for the national team are re- leaving really early. I don't think that's a great sign for the domestic league. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out for Australia. So that's Sweden then winning 2-0 against Australia to come third in this World Cup. So as is becoming customary now, FIFA president Gianni Infantino has given yet another speech. Yep, he's he's come back to Australia after leaving. And the, was it the first week of the tournament he left Michael? I can't remember. He hasn't been there for the whole thing, has he? No, I mean, someone's calculated he's done just an incredible amount of travelling. I think someone said his his air miles have kind of taken him the equivalent of a lap round the world since he left Australia, which is extraordinary, really. I, I don't really know what he's been playing at, really. Incredible. Well, um, in his speech, he said the Women's World Cup has broken even for the first time in its history, amassing over half a billion dollars. Uh, a huge win for the tournament and obviously good to hear that it's been backed financially. Uh, he did note there aren't any Italian journos out there covering the game. That's rubbish, isn't it, um, Michael? I, I'm pretty sure that's rubbish because I've done some Italy games and there were definitely Italian journalists there, but I'm sure you've seen them. Uh, well, I went to two Italy games in Wellington and I thought there was only one or two journalists there. One of them was clearly from broadcast. I, I don't know who the other was. But no, I mean, I was. I made that point to a couple of people out here. I, I went to two Italy games and I don't think there were any written press there. Maybe there was one or two. And I, I actually, I found that really difficult. I, well, I found it quite embarrassing, actually, because, you know, Bertolini, the manager, would come out for the press conference and they'd say, any questions? And there were barely any. And the only questions she got were from people like me asking in English. Uh, I, that was quite shocking, actually. I was quite, I'm loath to agree with Infantino on much, but, I do quite like him getting stuck in there because that was that was quite shocking. And I'm, maybe this is the kind of journalism politics normal care about. But Italian journalists are quite renowned for the fact that if there's a Champions League game between like, you know, Man City and Real Madrid, there'll be like 20 Italian journalists there. And people are always like, how on earth can they manage to send so many journalists <laughs> for this game that isn't involving Italian sides? And then they send barely anyone for the Women's World Cup on the other side of the world. And OK, Italy didn't do great, but... It's a chicken and egg thing. If there's more media coverage of it, we've seen from this tournament, even sceptics can be won over by the quality of football these days. Then you get more people interested in it, then you get bigger attendances, you get bigger revenues, and you put more money into the team, and the team becomes better. So I think it's quite sad, actually, because you go back to the 90s and the European Championship, and Italy were quite dominant. Italy were a really good team. It's a, you know, obviously a massive footballing country, but they've fallen back for, for various reasons. And one of the reasons, I think we have to say, is frankly the media don't put enough effort in to cover it and that's not necessarily through a lack of individuals because I have been told by people out here that there's you know some some people who maybe don't work for Gazette della Sport or whatever who do really good blogs and really good podcasts and that kind of thing and they struggle to get accreditation because you have to be kind of working for an official organization so it's not a dig at individuals but it's absolutely a dig at you know some of the newspapers and and other media companies who, who should be putting more of an effort in. Yeah, I mean, that is that is quite shocking. Like you said, maybe there's a slight broadcast presence, but not a lot else. But yeah, maybe rare for you, Michael, to agree with Infantino on something, but I'm pretty sure you won't have agreed on this, this one quite alarming quote. Infantino said, I say to all the women that you have the power to change. Pick the right battles, pick the right fights. You have the power to change. You have the power to convince us men what we have to do and what we don't have to do. We need to go for equality, but we have to do it for real. And you here in this room, all the women in this room, you have the power to do it, so believe in it. I can barely read that quote without laughing, 
Michael, because it's so ridiculous. What was your re- your reaction when you caught wind of this? Yeah, it is embarrassing. And I thought it was also embarrassing that he did the classic thing of saying that he, he cares about women because he's got four daughters, which I always think is pretty embarrassing. But I mean, I think this should be your place to say what you think, Michelle, rather than my place. <laughs> I wasn't surprised. Is that bad? Like, I wasn't surprised that he'd said it. And that probably indicates where we are, unfortunately, with... Gianni Infantino and with FIFA, I do think this World Cup has been a success. I do feel that it's had more coverage than ever. But for me, I saw how far we've got to go on um, Thursday evening. I play football with a group of guys, all sort of 30 plus, like a nine-a-side game. And one guy we play with is Spanish. And I said to Bert, you looking forward to Sunday? He said, oh yeah, but I only found out about it today that Spain are in the final and he's Spanish and he didn't even know that Spain were playing in a World Cup final. And okay, maybe he doesn't have the telly on, maybe he's not on his phone loads. But I have also noticed, you know, this isn't just laying into Infantino, but here the coverage for England reaching a World Cup final has been nowhere near what it would be for the men. So I think we still have a long way to go in that aspect. But comments like that, are part of the reason. And there's still, I feel like, this second-classness to women's football. There's still that attitude from the people at the very top, absolutely in charge, that are saying things like, we have to convince you, you know. And and what I have loved about this tournament is seeing how invested everyone has become when they've become aware of it and not have to be convinced you know, like it's not our job to convince you that it's good because we've already said in, in this podcast a couple of weeks ago, we don't want to constantly be compared to the men's game. We want to have our our own tournaments, do things in our own right. But you're already breaking even, like you've just said, on a World Cup. Imagine what it could be if we don't have to keep convincing you, if we don't have to keep pushing. He said, well, the, the big bit in that quote that caught my eye it was about opening the door. He's like, the door's there. The door is open, but you just need to push it. I'm like, well, if the door's open, why do I need to push it? <laughs> you know? But yeah, I read it and I laughed, Michael, to be honest, because it was a bit like the one in Qatar. Sometimes I just don't know if he engages his brain before he speaks. We've still got a really long way to go, but I I absolutely feel we've come so far. But quotes like that put us a bit backwards, really, don't they? Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, not that I think any convincing needs to be done, but I think the thing that is really clear to me now is that the football itself makes such a strong case for investing in it and showing interest in it. And I think it's it's improved so much over the last 10 years. You know, there were always some great players in a women's game, but you'd, you'd sometimes watch a top-level game and there would be things where you think, well, that's not great. But just the standard has been so high this tournament. And I've gotten to see a you know pretty big range of teams. I've seen the, the teams who are in the final. I've also seen Haiti, who are brilliant. I've seen Jamaica, who are really good. Every team in this tournament is, is, is offered something. And I think that's such a... And they've not all had the backing as well. Yeah, they've not absolutely. All had the backing yeah, like you're right. Well. That's the thing. A few, I mean, a few of them, it's almost like some of the best teams are the ones who haven't had the backing. They're the most impressive in terms of Nigeria and Jamaica mm. and Spain in a different sense. It, I mean, the, the quality has been really good. And I think, you know, this is a point that's been made before, probably in the group stage, but it's expanded by eight teams and the quality has still improved, I think, markedly from 2019. So... Uh, yeah, I just think that the quality of football is is making the case for itself, really. 
I mean, maybe if he'd been there for the whole tournament, he would have seen that, right? And he wouldn't need convincing. <laughs> That's a fair <laughs> point. That is a very good point. Well, thanks very much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast wherever you're listening now so you don't miss our review of the final. Thanks to my guests, Michael Cox and Laia Saveo Herrero. We'll be back one last time tomorrow when we will know our winner of the Women's World Cup 2023. We'll see you then. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.